Hello, and welcome to Campus Crime Chronicles. I'm your host, Nicole Turner, college professor, PhD student, and true crime addict. In every episode of this podcast, I take a deep dive into some sort of true crime that occurred on a school campus or is associated with a college or university in some way. For each episode, I rate the seriousness of the crime from 1 to 5 on my very own serious crime scale, with 1 being completely not serious, possibly even a little humorous from time to time, to 5 being very serious. Okay guys, before I begin today's episode, I have some super exciting news that I have been dying to share. One of my episodes is being featured on another amazing podcast, Military Murder. It's currently one of my favorite podcasts that I listen to in my weekly and bi-weekly rotation. See what I did there? Because my podcast is a bi-weekly rotation. (laughs) So that's my big announcement. My episode, Chronicle 4, titled Murder of a Third Generation Military Man, the story of Richard Collins III, is being featured today, this week, August 2nd, on Military Murder. So check it out wherever you listen to your podcasts. Seriously, go listen to Military Murder. Okay, wait. Maybe don't listen to it until after you've listened to today's episode of my own Campus Crime Chronicles, but... Anyway, I'm just so excited to share with you that news that it's being featured. One of my episodes is being featured on another awesome, awesome podcast. So I encourage you guys to go check out that podcast. Now let's dive into today's episode, Chronicle 11, which is rated a five. And I want to begin by asking you to place yourself in a scenario. So close your eyes. Okay, well, if you're driving, maybe don't close your eyes. That wouldn't be good. But imagine it's summer. Okay, well, it is summer, so that's not too hard, right? So now imagine it's a scorching hot August day in Texas, at least 100 degrees outside with at least 65% humidity. Y'all, that is miserable type of heat to most people. So now picture yourself lying on your back on a burning sidewalk that is so hot you can literally fry an egg on it. There's no shade from trees or buildings in sight. It's just you on the hard sizzling sidewalk and you are fighting for your life because, well, you've been shot. You're still alive, but all you can do is Lie there, helplessly pretending to be dead because you don't know what else to do. Actually, there's nothing you can do because you're also eight months pregnant. This might seem like the beginning of a horror movie, but for one college student at the University of Texas, this was her reality for nearly 90 minutes. Actually, The woman I just described to you, Claire Wilson, was just one of the innocent victims that day. This is the story of one of the first and deadliest mass shootings in U.S. history by a lone gunman, which took place August 1st, 1966. Yesterday, today's August 2nd, so yesterday, August 1st, 
marked 55 years since the shooter made his way to the top of the clock tower at the University of Texas in Austin, a building right smack in the middle of the now 437-acre campus. And he began a shooting rampage for what seemed like an eternity to those enduring this tragic nightmare. This episode is titled Texas Tower of Terror. So without further ado, let's get started. Claire Wilson James, the woman I just described to you, was the first person shot in this deadly massacre. She and her boyfriend, Thomas Ekman, were in the student union on this day, August 1st, 1966, at around 11.30 a.m. The two had just taken an anthropology test, so they had gotten out of class a little early and they stopped by the student union for some coffee before leaving campus. Then, when they needed to leave because their parking meter was running low on time, they were making their way out of the union, down the steps, and Claire felt a sudden, huge jolt, like she had just stepped on a live wire and been electrocuted. In an instant, Claire fell to the ground, and Tom, stunned, reached over to see if she was okay when he was suddenly shot and he too dropped to the ground beside Claire. The first shot was fired at 11.48 a.m. In a matter of minutes, news began to spread rapidly around campus that a gunman was firing from above, and they soon realized it was coming from the clock tower in the main building because even though the shooter started with Claire and Tom, he definitely did not end there. Right away, people could tell there was no rhyme or reason to the shootings. The guy, this sniper, was just shooting at free will at anyone and everyone who crossed his path and came into target. One of those people wasn't even a student. He was a young paper boy who actually wasn't even supposed to be working that day, but because he was dedicated to his job and finally landed the biggest and best route he could ask for, which was on the UT campus, Alec Hernandez Jr. filled in that day and took his little cousin, Lee, with him on the route. As he was making his way through campus on his bike, he said he could hear booming or popping sounds in the distance like firecrackers going off. Then, before he knew it, he, too, had been shot. That's when he realized that it wasn't fireworks he was hearing at all. It was the sound of gunshots that echoed in the air. Just then, Alec's bicycle toppled over and he and his cousin both fell off. Across the street at the UT co-op, which was like the main campus bookstore, an employee, Alan Crum, who is a key player in this story, which is why I'm telling you about him, Alan Crum saw a crowd gathered around the paper boy, so he walked over toward him. He said at first he thought it was just a small fight or something, but as he was walking, he began to recognize the sounds in the distance as gunshots, and he instantly realized Alec had been shot. 
However, he couldn't tell at first where the shots were coming from, but he knew he couldn't get back across the street because he himself might get shot. So he kept moving, keeping low to the next building on campus. He said he was trying to find a telephone to call his wife because it was his lunch hour and she would worry. He said he knew if he could make it to the tower, then he could make contact with both his wife and his work, basically to just let him know that he was okay. But as he made his way through campus, ducking behind whatever building or object he could to dodge bullets, he said he found a column that shielded him pretty well, but that column just happened to be right in the path of the sniper. So Alan peeked around the column, looked up directly toward the sniper where the bullets were coming from, and flipped him off. What? The sniper saw him and fired a shot directly at him, hitting the thick column, just barely missing Alan. However, Alan said, quote, he fired once at the column, but he didn't do it again, end quote. After that, Alan waited until the shooter began firing on the other side of the tower, and then he ran across the street straight into the tower building. As gruesome as it sounds, it didn't take long for bodies to begin dropping across campus. Many, like Claire and Tom, just lying there, scattered, some injured, some pretending to be dead, but others were actually lifeless. People inside, though, were hovered around windows and classrooms and buildings on campus trying to just get a look to see exactly what was going on. Brenda Bell recalled that she was in a Shakespeare class when they first started hearing the shots. All of the students in the class had an immediate gut reaction to run over toward the windows of the English building to try to put an image to what they had just heard. At the windows, the students all just stood there looking over one another's shoulders. Then they witnessed something that put the extent of the situation into much greater perspective. A responding police officer, Billy Speed, who was only 24 years old at the time, was shot and instantly began fighting for his life. Ultimately, Officer Speed didn't make it, and Brenda remembered that when the police officer was shot, it was like a turning point of the whole situation. She said very somberly, quote, That was the moment that separated the brave people from the scared people. I knew that there was no way that I was going to go out there and help them. I didn't want to get shot. That was a defining moment because I realized I was a coward, end quote. And I can't say I blame her. I mean, I can't imagine how terrified out of their minds everyone must have been. And I don't think any of us can say exactly how we would react unless, you know, we had been through horror like that before. However, some people did rush outside to try and help Officer Speed. One girl tore off her slip to put around the gunshot wound to try and stop the bleeding. But back outside where Claire and Tom were sprawled out in the hot sun, Claire remembered how badly the pavement burnt the back of her legs. She tried to call out to Tom, but he was unresponsive because ultimately Tom's gunshot wound was fatal and it took his life. Claire's gunshot wound almost took her life too, but thanks to the help of some brave and compassionate students, 
Claire was able to miraculously make it through and live to tell about her experience. One of those students was Rita Starpattern, a bright, redheaded girl with glasses. Rita courageously ran out to Claire and dropped to the ground and just laid there with her. She began talking to her, told Claire her name, and said she was going to wait there with her. She kept Claire conscious, and Claire said, honestly, she's not sure she would have survived if she would have lost consciousness. Another student who ultimately risked his own life to save Claire's was John Artley Fox. He was just 17 years old at the time and had just graduated from Austin High School in 1966, but he was already taking classes as a freshman that summer. He was playing chess with a friend, James, on campus when they heard what was happening on the radio as they listened to the top 40. They said someone was on top of the tower shooting with an air rifle. So, being normal, curious young men, they thought it sounded funny or interesting or really just like a place that they wanted to go check out rather than stay away from. But as they got closer to the tower, people began yelling at them, telling them to get out of the line of fire and take cover. By the time they got to campus, at least a dozen people had been murdered, but because of the misinformation they heard on the radio, they had no idea how deadly the scene was or that it was even deadly at all. They ultimately took cover in Sutton Hall and began peering out the window at the chaos below. It was then that they noticed Claire and Tom sprawled out in the hot sun and they wanted to help, but they knew there was nothing they could do from the building that they were in. So they headed out into the open campus and began stealthily making their way toward the main mall where Claire and Tom were lying. They approached the statue of Jefferson Davis on campus and basically used it as a shield with some other students who were already there. Artley said, quote, People say that statue should be taken down, that that statue has no place being there because Jefferson Davis and all he represents. But at least on that day, it gave me a little shelter, end quote. He was frustrated. He wanted to help and bring the people laying out there to safety. But he was also scared to death and knew what could happen to him if he went out there to try and get them. Still, Artley became incredibly overwhelmed with empathy and just yearning to help Claire and just others who were out there. He said, quote, every 15 minutes, the bell would ring from the top of the UT tower. And I think that's 15 more minutes, 15 more minutes that they were out there on that hot concrete, end quote. Just when Claire was about to give up, Artley and his friend James emerged from their safe spots sprinted toward Claire and they pulled her out of the burning sunlight away from the line of fire and into the shade. Artley said he had never been more scared in his life. Meanwhile, Austin police officer Houston McCoy had been listening to country and Western music on his car radio while he was filling out reports when he heard something come through his police radio. He couldn't really make out exactly what the person on the other end was saying because it was a bit scrambled, but what he did make out was that something was happening at the University of Texas. 
not thinking the worst, obviously, just thinking it was likely something minor, Officer McCoy responded on his radio and said he'd head to the campus. As he was approaching campus, he said he kind of figured that whatever had happened would likely be over with by now, and he'd just be assisting with the aftermath, whatever that may be. But little did he know he was very wrong, and he would later be remembered as one of the heroes who saved the day. When he got to campus, Officer McCoy took out his rifle that he kept with him in his squad car. He asked some students if any of them had a scope rifle. The one boy who said he did, McCoy instructed him to go with him so they could try to get a good shot at the sniper from another building. McCoy, though, had never used a rifle with a scope, so he said he got a little shaky and couldn't get a clear shot. He said it wasn't a nervous shake, though, just a wobble, like he couldn't get the crosshairs to center in. McCoy said, quote, the boy said he could and Lord knows he had better eyes than I did, end quote. Then the kid asked McCoy, if I see someone, do I shoot him? McCoy said, quote, you should shoot the shit out of him, end quote. After this, police scanners became filled with reports about a shooter firing from the top of the UT Tower. This is when Nil Spells, a reporter for KTBC Radio in Austin, first got word of the sniper. He was in the studio preparing for his radio newscast at noon, but after the reports of the gunshots at UT, he and several others, including photographers and reporters, jumped into their mobile unit and began broadcasting from their CB radio as they drove to campus. He began by warning the citizens of Austin to stay away from the university campus, and he ended up staying on the air the whole time for over an hour. Spells described the scene as pure chaos. They didn't know who was being shot, how many, if there might be more than one shooter even, because the shots were coming so frequently and they were coming from basically all sides of the tower observation deck. They later learned that the shooter had a weapon propped up on one side of the tower, so all he had to do was walk by, aim, and pull the trigger, then keep circling the tower on all four sides with a weapon in his hand as he kept shooting. Spell said, quote, Nothing in our background, nothing in anyone's background could prepare you for what was happening at the time. Nothing. There had been no mass shootings of any kind, certainly not out in the open like we had on the University of Texas campus. It was a sight that was incomprehensible, end quote. Spells went on to describe the situation. He said, you saw people running, screaming, shouting, voices saying, what's happening? Get down. Can someone help that person? He said, quote, a serene campus. It was not, end quote. Shots were flying in so many directions that another girl who thankfully and luckily survived was shot not directly by the sniper, but by a bullet that ricocheted off a building and hit her in its path. So literally nobody was safe. Ready for a career in behavioral health? Earn your online degree at Herzing University. Choose from health and human services, psychology, or social work programs. Gain the skills to work, coordinate, and manage nonprofits. Secure a bachelor's in psychology to study mental health or advance your social work career through our online master's of social work. 
Let us help you become a social change agent. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Text HEALTH to 85109. That's HEALTH to 85109. Or visit herzing.edu. Ambulances, sirens, and the sound of constant gunshots filled the UT campus. But there were so many ambulances needed that the city couldn't keep up. So funeral homes started sending hearses to help pick up the injured. Alec, the paper boy on the bicycle, recalled that as he was riding in the ambulance after being shot, not knowing whether he was going to live or die, thankfully he did survive, the driver got a call and they wanted him to pick up another victim just around the corner. Alec said the whole way he could look out the back of the ambulance window and see the tower. He just kept thinking to himself, if we don't get out of here quick, as in the line of fire, I'm going to get shot again. Another Austin police officer, Ramiro Ray Martinez, who wasn't even supposed to be on duty until 3 p.m. that day, heard about the shots coming from the tower on the 12 o'clock news, so he called the police station to see if his assistance was needed. Then he made another phone call to his wife to tell her he was going to campus to see what was going on and help out if he could. He initially just thought he would be directing traffic, you know, like keeping the situation as calm as possible by also keeping people away from campus. But when he got into his patrol car that day and headed to UT, he had no idea what awaited him. When he did arrive, it didn't take him long to take stock of the situation and realize just how bad it was. Ramirez said that he knew if he could see the clock tower, then the shooter could see him, and there weren't many safe places to be on campus clear of the gunfire. Regardless, people were hiding behind whatever they could find. Statues, trees, columns, flagpoles, car doors, anything that could act as even a slight shield from the bullets flying all around them. Here's the thing. (laughs) In Texas and I can say this because I grew up in Texas. I may have been born in Oklahoma, which is where I currently live, but I was raised in Texas, y'all. So anyway, in Texas, you don't mess with innocent people or you'll have some well-intended conservative vigilantes who bring their guns from home and try to show you who's boss. Well, they don't try to show you. They just do show you. And this situation was no different. At some point during the 96-minute nightmare, people began realizing that there were shots coming from both directions. Down from the clock tower where the sniper was, obviously, but also they were coming from the ground up. Citizens of Austin, as well as off-duty police officers who had heard about the sniper on the news or the radio, went home, grabbed their deer rifles or rifles with scopes, and showed up to campus armed and revengeful. Ain't no sniper going to take out innocent people without a fight, and a fight he did get. Spells, the KTBC radio reporter, said that this is when the shots from the tower began to actually slow down. The guy could no longer get a clear shot because he too had to start dodging bullets that were being fired back at him. Y'all might be wondering though, why weren't the police being more reactive to the situation and trying to get a better handle on it? Well, Spells gave a very specific reason for this. Back then in 1966, 
there was no such thing as SWAT teams and EMS crews. And police were just simply not equipped with weapons that could reach all the way up to the clock tower, 300 feet above. Their guns, their only guns that they carried around in their holsters, just weren't cutting it. But that didn't mean police weren't devising a plan to take the sniper out. They just had to go about it in a different way. At one point, an airplane did circle the tower to try and fire at the sniper, but according to Spels, it was a small airplane and the drafts of the heat and wind made it impossible for the authorities in the plane to get a clear and steady shot. Officer Martinez, the one who thought he was just going to help with traffic, had previously been in the army and his military instincts quickly kicked in when he got to campus. He said he ran, avoiding view of the top of the tower as much as possible until he got to the South Mall by the Jefferson Davis statue. He knew he needed to set up a command post right away and at least attempt to organize an assault team. He said, quote, I thought, maybe, I could go into the tower and assist the people that were going there. My mission was to get into the tower, end quote. So the tower is exactly where he went. Now, I think it's a good time to describe the tower and really the layout of the whole scene. So the building that the tower set atop was the main building on campus. That was the actual name of the building. It had 27 floors and the entrance to the tower was on the top floor, the 27th floor. However, similar to any rooftop entrance, the top floor had an additional stairwell, which in this case was labeled observation deck, where another flight of stairs, just like a, the final flight of stairs, led to the deck of the tower. That deck is a square with four sides, meaning there is a walkway that spans across four directions. So there is a north, a south, an east, and a west side of the tower. So the shooter was basically camped out up there on the deck, running around from side to side, basically shooting anyone and everyone he could target. So it was just like one big like square circle type of thing. After Officer Martinez arrived, he rode to the elevator to the 27th floor of the building, audibly praying the whole time because he had no idea what he would find once he got to the top. When he got up to the foyer of the 27th floor, a few other officers, along with Alan Crum, remember he was the co-op bookstore employee, whom I mentioned earlier, were already up there trying to figure out how to get a handle on this situation. Martinez, though, took the situation into his own hands. He began heading up the stairs to the actual observation deck of the tower. So basically the only thing that stood between him and the sniper was one flight of stairs and a metal door that went out onto the deck. As Martinez headed up the final flight of stairs, stepping over two victims who lay there motionless, Alan Crum followed behind him with a rifle in hand. So Alan had a rifle and Martinez had his 38 caliber pistol as they proceeded. However, just before they went out the door to where the sniper was, Alan looked at Officer Martinez and said, are we playing for keeps? Martinez replied, you're damn right we're playing for keeps. So Alan said, you better deputize me then. Y'all, Alan, this random bookstore employee was so brave and so heroic that 
Martinez literally thought he was another police officer from a force outside the city. He had no idea Alan was a civilian just trying to help. So Martinez replied to him, quote, consider yourself deputized, end quote. Then the two headed out the door to face the monster ahead. Somehow, though, Officer Houston McCoy, whom I mentioned earlier, had also made his way to the tower and he was headed up the stairs to the deck with a rifle in hand. He had been right behind Officer Martinez and Alan Crum. Then Martinez, gun in hand, perched and ready, went around one side of the tower. McCoy followed right behind Martinez as a backup while Alan approached from the opposite side and Alan was actually joined by another officer who came up a little later as well. However, Alan said he heard the sniper moving, like coming his direction from around one corner, so he fired a warning shot at the wall of the tower. This actually startled the shooter and made him run the other direction, basically toward Martinez and McCoy. But when Martinez rounded the corner, he emptied his gun into the suspect. Martinez said, quote, there was no time to think about fear. Now, I'd be a fool or liar if I say I was not scared. I was scared, but you put that behind you. You cannot have fear in front of you and do your job, end quote. McCoy also fired at the suspect as well, but Martinez is ultimately the one who took him out when he emptied all of his rounds into him. Martinez recalled exactly what happened as soon as he was done firing. He said, quote, by the time I had emptied my pistol, McCoy was pretty close. I grabbed that shotgun from McCoy and I shot him one more time as he was hitting the ground. After that was done, my knees felt like rubber. I felt like I had been hit by a sledgehammer. I mean, all my energy left me and I was shaking, end quote. However, bullets were still coming up from the ground because at first, people down below had no idea that they had stopped the shooter, that they had killed him. But Alan Crum waved his white handkerchief in the air to let people know it was over. When that white flag came, people below knew it was done. The shooting ended and the whole campus felt a wave of silence. Spells, the radio reporter, recalled, quote, when I said the sniper is dead, it was like a big whoosh sigh of relief. Sirens all of a sudden started getting silent. The bullets stopped and it was quiet, end quote. After the shooting had stopped, people began coming out of their shielded hiding place slowly, like you'd see in a movie. At first, a few, then dozens, then hundreds, then thousands filled the main mall of campus. Spells described it as everyone just being mesmerized, like zombies coming out of the woodworks. Everyone was silent, dazed, like they couldn't believe what had just happened in their world, like it was a terrible, terrible dream. But it was a very sad, sad reality. And after that reality came to a terrifying end, the sniper killed a total of 14 innocent victims that day, including. Claire's unborn baby boy who did not survive the gunshot wound Claire sustained, and another 31 people were injured with one of those people later dying from complications related to his wounds. But 
I'm sure all of you are thinking and excuse my language in the next few minutes because this stuff makes me super angry. So fair warning, but who the hell was this terrible fucktard of a person who wreaked havoc on the UT campus that day for 96 minutes? It was a 25-year-old man by the name of Charles J. Whitman, who was an architectural engineering student at the University of Texas. And what nobody knew at the time was that the night before all of this happened, Whitman actually killed both his wife and his mother. First, he stopped by his mother's apartment and stabbed and strangled her to death. Then, he went home to his wife and stabbed her in their bed while she slept. When Whitman arrived to campus the next day, just before classes let out for lunch, he dressed as a maintenance man and wheeled a footlocker behind him that contained three rifles, two pistols, and a sawed-off shotgun, all locked and loaded with plenty of ammo that he had purchased that morning. But that's not the extent of the goods he packed for his horrific attack. He also packed canned peaches and sweet rolls, water, Excedrin, deodorant, toilet paper, a transistor radio, binoculars, and a machete. Just for good measure, I guess? He was prepared to camp out there on the tower for however long it took to, I guess, get the job done? Anyway, when he first went into the main building of the tower, he was discouraged after he couldn't get the elevator to work and take him to the 27th floor. That floor, the top floor of the building, as I said earlier, accessed the stairs that led up to the observation deck. But a receptionist, assuming he was headed to the top of the tower for some sort of maintenance work, switched the elevator on for him. Whitman smiled at her and said, quote, Thank you, ma'am. You don't know how happy that makes me, end quote. Then the creepy motherfucker rode the elevator up to the top floor. After the elevator doors opened, Whitman shot a receptionist who was sitting in the foyer as well as two tourists in his path before making his way up the stairs to the top of the tower. On those stairs, though, he also shot and wounded two more people in his way, but they miraculously survived. Then, once at the top of the tower, he unloaded his weapons and opened the world to its first dose of mass murder in a public place. According to an article that ran the next day in Austin's daily newspaper, Whitman was described as, quote, a good son, a top Boy Scout, an excellent Marine, an honor student, a hard worker, a loving husband, a fine scoutmaster, a handsome man, a wonderful friend to all who knew him, and an expert sniper, end quote. You see, Whitman grew up around guns because his sorry excuse of an overbearing and abusive father taught him all there was to know about guns at the time, and Whitman's experience as a Marine just sharpened his knowledge and skills even more. So what the hell could possibly be this guy's motive for killing all of these people? I mean, okay, so he was an excellent marksman, but Why on earth would he decide to abuse those skills and take innocent lives at random? Well, the jury's still out on that one, but I can give you a little more background about Whitman. Apparently, Whitman's parents divorced in March of 1966, a few months before his shooting spree, and shortly after, he began to experience some serious mental health issues. 
Then, on March 29, 1966, Whitman saw a psychiatrist and told him he was experiencing uncontrollable bouts of anger. Y'all, he even told this doctor that he was thinking about going to the top of the tower with a rifle and shooting people. But the doctor, I guess, didn't really do anything about these red flags and basically just told Whitman to schedule another appointment for the following week. Really? This guy tells you he wants to kill people and you just tell him to come back again? What? Guess what? Whitman never went back to the doctor. Instead, his mental state deteriorated immensely. After Whitman killed his mother and wife a few months later, he left a half-typed, half-handwritten letter behind, and this is what that letter said, quote, I do not really understand myself these days. I am supposed to be an average, reasonable, and intelligent young man. However, lately, I cannot recall when it started, I have been a victim of many unusual and irrational thoughts. I talked with a doctor once for about two hours and tried to convey to him my fears that I felt come overwhelming, violent impulses. After one session, I never saw the doctor again, and since then, I have been fighting my mental turmoil alone and seemingly to no avail. After my death, I wish that an autopsy would be performed on me to see if there is any visible physical disorder. Maybe research can prevent further tragedies of this type. End quote. He also wrote regarding why he killed his wife, quote, I don't want her to have to face the embarrassment my actions would surely cause her. I truly do not consider this world worth living in and am prepared to die, and I do not want to leave her to suffer alone in it. Similar reasons provoked me to take my mother's life, end quote. Before ending this story, I want to circle back around to the three men who are so deservingly remembered as the heroes who saved the day. Austin police officers Ray Martinez and Houston McCoy and deputized citizen Alan Crum. Their bravery and courage and overall quick thinking and swift actions literally put an end to the first public mass shooting in U.S. history. In fact, in the days that followed the tragic events, Crum said, quote, I've never known braver men. Their decisions were correct, timely done, and accomplished in an honorable manner. If I had to do this all over again with these men, I certainly would, end quote. Martinez, who was 29 at the time, is retired now, but he went on to become a Texas Ranger and then a Justice of the Peace in Comal County, Texas. Unfortunately, Alan Crum passed away in 2001 and McCoy passed away in 2012. But when McCoy was interviewed prior to his death and asked how the whole situation and incident made him feel, he said in his deep Southern drawl, quote, how do I describe the colors of a rainbow to a person that was born blind? You can't because there ain't no words, end quote. But his daughter, Monica McCoy, did follow in her father's footsteps and is now an officer for Austin PD. She said her dad always said, quote, if there was one hero that day, there were a thousand heroes that day, end quote. Okay, y'all, that brings us to the end of Chronicle 11. I do want to acknowledge here that in today's episode, you might have noticed I didn't reference any news sources or websites like I normally do throughout the episode. 
The reason for this is twofold. First, most of my information came from the 2016 documentary Tower, which did an excellent job of recreating the full story and shedding light on the victims and telling the story from the survivors' perspectives. Secondly, I didn't want to rattle off my sources and take away from the storytelling itself because there were so many key players and key pieces of information in this episode that I think stopping to tell you where the info came from might have actually taken away from the fluidity and the continuity of the story itself. So here I will say that my other sources for this episode include the Austin American Statesman, Texas Standard, the History Channel, the Patriot News, an article by Pamela Koloff in Texas Monthly, VOA News, and an article by Jeff Wallenfeld for Britannica.com. As always, I sincerely hope you enjoyed today's episode, and I encourage you guys to please, please leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. Y'all might not think it really helps me get the word out, but I promise you it really does. Like it really really does. But here's the thing. I only have like nine reviews and I'm trying to get to at least a hundred by the end of 2021. So I'm asking you guys, help me get to a hundred. I need a hundred people to click those five stars. So if you really like Campus Crime Chronicles, tell your friends and then tell your friends to tell their friends. A hundred isn't that much, right? (laughs) Okay, bye y'all. Campus Crime Chronicles is researched, written, and recorded by me, Nicole Turner, and it's edited and produced by Big Mad Media. Tune in again in two weeks for the next Chronicle.